Welcome to the Smith Sense Podcast with Matt Smith. I'm Anthony Bruno, and in each episode, Matt and I discuss the real-life struggles, ideas, and strategies of successful entrepreneurs and business leaders like himself. Unlike much of the startup or management advice out there, these conversations don't come from a book or a TED Talk, but rather from the current daily ins and outs of an entrepreneur in the trenches making it happen every day. In this episode, we address an elephant in the room that we probably should have gotten into much earlier in the podcast, which is Matt's practice of Stoic philosophy. Now, this philosophy forms the basis of much of his thinking and his approach to business and life, so really talking about it more directly helps lay the foundation for all the issues we discuss in this show, both previously and uh, going forward. Now, Stoicism is relatively a new concept for me. It's something I've started to hear about more and more outside my relationship with Matt, and of course with it as well, so my curiosity around it has just grown. And while I can't claim to be a convert, in fact, I'm probably more of a skeptic, I have found certain components of Stoicism to be useful on their own. So whether you're interested in Stoic philosophy as a whole or just interested in some of its tenets, this is going to be a good conversation for you. So with that, here's Matt. So Matt, nice to talk to you again this morning. I had some questions for you, actually, to start things off today. We've been having a number of these conversations, and this is you know a number of podcasts out now and whatnot. And throughout the ones that we've done so far, you've brought up a concept that we've never really dug into further that I'd like to today, which is this I, this concept. I'm calling it a concept of what you say stoicism or stoic this or stoic that. You've dropped that term a number of times, and I didn't want to distract our conversation by asking more about them. But I'd like to sort of dedicate some time today to that. What is that? Well, stoicism is a ancient Greek philosophy that's survived the test of time because of its usefulness. And it's kind of regained you know, new popularity, I would say, over the last uh, five or six years. A lot of that comes from you know, Ryan Holiday, a friend of mine who uh, wrote a couple of books on the topic. Tim Ferriss also you know, sort of popularized it a bit, but I think Ryan has done more for Stoicism than anyone else in the country. And it's been really good for the country, I think. It's funny that you mentioned those others, because the reason I bring it up is because I've also heard it repeated, well, at least from the Tim Ferriss side, I also just see it here and there, and it seems to be like this. I don't mean to sound dismissive, so forgive me if it comes off that way. But like, it, it almost comes, comes to be like one of these like entrepreneur sort of. I don't want to say pop psychology, but it's like you know, if you're an entrepreneur and you're in the start of life, and some of these stoicism has kind of popped up a lot. And I'm just, I guess, I'm trying to figure out why. Like, I, I've I've been vaguely aware. I've heard of this thing called stoicism, but I haven't studied it. I don't know any really much about it. I'm not a philosophy guy. I'm just wondering why it comes up in sort of that startup world, if it's just a matter of the fact that that's the kind of stuff that I listen to and therefore it naturally pops up, or if it's something that really is just um, this sort of niche idea that founders naturally gravitate to. Well, it's really useful, I think, is one of the key things. And we'll talk about how it's useful in a minute. Number two is that you know things do go in fads. And my hope is that this isn't something that just comes as a fad. You know, I, I started to worry a couple of years ago that you know stoicism is the new yoga got just gets so hot and everyone wants everyone thinks it's a big thing and everyone talks about being a yogi and all that stuff and I, so I'm a little worried about that but still in the wake of a yoga fad people actually learn and practice yoga and it's good for you so it's not so bad at the end even if it sort of fizzles out as a fad the other reason why I think it's popular though is because of the people that I mentioned they are influencers I hate that word but it's true that uh, you know Ryan Holiday is an influencer within the tech and entrepreneurial community and so is of course Tim Ferriss and so those guys and others sort of in their orbit, you know, have really bought into the ideas and have found them useful in their own lives and then talk about them. It's base utility, the influencers influence within certain communities, and then the natural, you know, preference of people for fads, you know, for the new idea, the new, new thing. 
Right. And it's funny that you bring up the yoga thing. That's a perfect analogy because for me, I got into yoga not because I believe in the spiritual component of yoga. To me, I call it stretching. And I have a bad back and the stretching helps my back. And, that, and I'm, so I'm a very practical guy in that regard. So maybe we could talk about sort of with the stoicism thing. I'd love to kind of explore a little bit the sort of the practical takeaways of terms of the practice or the thought around it. And then you could take it maybe a little further to perhaps pass that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the core idea in stoicism is pretty simple. And it's basically, it's a practical life philosophy designed to help you live with less distress, you know, with less pain and suffering. It's a lot like Buddhism in that way. In fact, it's a lot like Buddhism in a lot of ways. But the elimination of suffering is one of the key goals of Stoicism. And then in addition to that, it's to, it's to live as well as one possibly might. And you know how that's defined, it can be you know, somewhat different for everybody. But I mean, to live as well as one might, and part of that, of course, is the elimination of suffering. Even the teaching of philosophy, Epictetus would say, who was like one of the really one of the three main anchors that that are still very popular within Stoicism, and he's my favorite. You know, he said the teaching of philosophy is not designed to create professional philosophers; it's designed to create excellent people. Yeah, and then that's probably good for me to hear because I mean, when I think philosophy, I think of old guys in a robe arguing about things that can't be proven, and in a certain extent, don't really guys in a robe arguing about things that can't be proven, and in a certain extent, yes. don't. Really, well, let's get past. It. So let's get into like stoicism. So when I hear stoicism, I think you know that the word alone sounds like you know stiff back, resilient against the feelings of others, and and that kind of thing. Can you maybe let's start by attacking, or at least at least digging into some of the misconceptions around it first, perhaps. I think one of the major assumptions that people have with it, and certainly almost seemed as the, the definition of it for a long time, was that it was one without emotion. You know, you were strong, but you were. Like you didn't care. And, be, and it's because you didn't care that you weren't affected by things external to you. And that's exactly what I thought it was when you first brought it up. Yeah. People think of it that way. And I think, you know, there's a part of it that's true. I mean, certainly Epictetus would say, so someone thinks badly of you. Okay, well, that's their business, you know? So in that way, that's true. What someone may, how they may think of you is really not within your control. It is really their thing only. And it's their business. And it's fine if they think poorly of you. You know, to be not tangled up in the emotions associated with how you might be perceived by others is part of Stoicism. And so if you extrapolate it too far, you get to this point where, you know, you think that emotions altogether are sort of pointless. But it's that Stoicism is not like that at all. Stoicism is not a passionless philosophy. It believes in the intertwining of rationality, which is like this core human trait, something that differentiates humans from all other life. In you know the Stoics' view, like connect, it's the same trait of God. You know, this rationality is the same trait. It's like the divine spark. So people think of you as emotionless. You know, I think that the biggest misconception is is that you don't care and you have utter detachment from the world. And so that's not it. It's not it. Buddhism, the teaching of Buddhism from Buddha's perspective, was about was for the householder, was for the person who is practicing Buddhism but still had to live in the world. You know, it's supposed to be a practical philosophy, just like Stoicism is. He talked to the householder, and the householder is somebody who has a wife, who has kids, who has land to tend to, you know, to farm, who can't sit in a monastery or a cave and contemplate the meaning of life constantly, not a priest. And uh, Epictetus and the rest of the Stoics all were, it was very practical in that same line too. I mean, if you look at some of the, just from a historical context, the people who, some of the best known Stoics, you know, the most probably popular one is Marcus Aurelius. You know, if there is an example of, a, you know, a philosopher king on earth, if there ever was one, it's him. He was the most powerful man on earth as emperor of Rome, and yet he was a Stoic. You know, he lived very modestly. 
and was constantly trying to bring his own attention to his own development, to just striving to improve himself every day. So he was living in the world. He, I mean, he had to live in the actual world, whether it be, you know, uh, leading at the front wars that Rome was involved with. You know, they were kind of holding back the hordes from the north, you know, during his reign, you know, to dealing with sort of the political infighting that would occur. I mean, this is a guy who, when he became emperor of Rome, the first thing he did is he shared his power equally with his stepbrother, you know? I mean, it's like sort of weird. It's a George Washington-esque sort of thing to do, you know, to like walk away from power because he was guided by his pursuit of excellence and trying to live with virtue and control what he could. What are the practical components of the stoicism that you get that allows you to sort of use this in, in what we talk about on the podcast, which is like, you know, strategies for business and things like that. You mentioned something earlier in your last answer that I keyed in on. It was that word, you know, things you can control, for instance. That seems to be a pretty core tenet. Can you kind of maybe expand on that a little bit first? Yeah. I mean, uh, Epictetus had called this the correct use of impressions. And this was the sort of cornerstone of his whole, of all of his teaching was the correct use of impressions. And an impression essentially is anything that happens external to you or internal in your own thinking. It's something that sort of pops into your perception, you know, whether it be that you're driving and, you know, you see someone crossing the road and you have to react to it. So your perception of that person crossing the road creates in your head, you know, an impression. And then maybe when you get an email and it's some bad news about something, some bad news, now you're qualifying that as bad news. So that's a non-stoic thing to do is to qualify it, first of all, as bad news. But the impression of it, the perception of this email that you get is the impression in his mind, Okay. It's the impression. And the key thing for him is to correctly use it. And the correct use of an impression is, first of all, recognizing what is in your control and what is not in your control. And if it is not in your control, it is inherently not bad. Nothing that is outside of your control can be bad is one of the core tenets of it. So all kinds of terrible things happen in the world. Terrible, and I'm just I'm using terrible because of, you know the Stoics wouldn't call it terrible, but these things are things that are objectively terrible. Yes. Global pandemic, is it's not good. At some point, we'd make a judgment about it, and we can choose to either see things as something that is bad, is problematic, that is negative. It's not the most empowering use of it often. So like even with the global pandemic, so we have a situation where people are locked in their homes, more or less, it's getting to people at this point, and it's understandable, it's understandable. But the global pandemic is outside of your control. You know, losing your job is out of your control. You know, maybe a family member getting sick and being in the hospital is out of your control. So those things, in a Stoic's view, are not bad, though. They're not bad. And this goes to the theological part, which I could talk about that a little bit, because it doesn't matter, I guess, in this context. Those are not bad. The only things that can be good or bad are things that are within your control. So that impression that, you know, a family member goes into the hospital or a family member dies. It's just someone dies. Is it bad that someone dies? And Epictetus would say, it's not bad that someone dies. It's your response to it is what creates the good and badness. It's your judgment about the thing that happens, that is where all goodness and all badness comes from. I mean, all people die. Everyone dies. In, in Epictetus' mind, it's the natural order of things. Like, this is the cycle of life. How can death be bad? Life and death is a much broader conversation. But like, you know, death, you're right, as a thing that happens is natural and it's going to happen. But the manner of death can be bad. Is that something that we can argue on a little? <laughs> he would say no, only be, and this is, and I don't want to go too far down this, this okay. particular road because I think people can get too hung up on it. So this talks to the most controversial stoic idea there is, which is the idea of predestination. So Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, all the big guys, okay, they believe that in predestination which essentially is that there is a destiny, it's all laid out in advance, 
it is part of a natural order of things, and you could say part of God's plan, you could say, or you could say, as most would say, uh, Marcus Aurelius would say, it's just, it's nature. It's nature of which you are an appendage. You are part of that nature. You can't disconnect sort of the future or, or, you know, all of life essentially from yourself, which is also a very Buddhist idea. So you can't separate these two. And so the natural order of what happens in life, to judge it as bad is incredibly arrogant of you. If you assume it's God, then you're saying you know more than God. Now, if you assume it's something more powerful than God, like a natural order that is like ties everything together, and you don't like something within that natural order that happens, perhaps it's because you lack some understanding about what's happening. Perhaps it's your point of view, your perspective on it is so small that you can't understand the good that comes from that. There's like a paradox in Stoicism where it's the belief in predestination, where you know these things happen to you in life and you can't change them. And yet there's a sense of radical responsibility as well. So among the things that you can change, you are required to do so. You are supposed to be doing these things. Yeah. I don't know if that's a paradox. That seems to almost make sense because there's so many things that you can't control. When you do recognize the things that you can, it just makes you more, I think you use the word responsible for doing your part to control that it sounds like. And, and, that, and that's what I want to kind of get into because that's how I first started to even pay more attention to, to, to the term stoicism is this idea that there's things that are in your control, there are things that are out of your control, and there's things that you can influence, right? Now, that's something that I've thought for a long time. I've heard, I heard it from somewhere else. It wasn't attached to a label like stoicism or anything like that. It just somehow it came into my thinking and I'm like, yeah, I get that. And I, so I guess I've been practicing that component for a while without having a, a label for it. The ideas of Stoicism in Stoicism are so useful that they've been adopted by different religions and different cultures. I mean, a lot of the basic tenets in Christianity, the Christians had some problems with the Romans, okay? You know, and so Please, tell, t- tell me all about it as the, uh, as the Roman Catholic Italian over here. Let's hear more. They adopted a lot of the Stoic ideas, though. Yes. A lot of the Stoic ideas got adopted. And you know, even idioms now like um, roll with the punches, that's a Stoic idea. It happens. Like Things happen to you, and you got to go with it. You know, even the idea that like this common idea, well, that, you know, we look back on what happened and we go, I'm happy that these things I thought were bad, you know, happened to me at the time when I, they happened. I thought they were bad. But in retrospect, I'm glad they happened. Because it made me who I am now. Exactly. And like that is fundamentally stoic. That is fundamentally stoic. We all do that in retrospect. So the trick in stoicism is to do that in the moment. When bad stuff, bad, quote, befalls you, it's to recognize it's your ignorance is why you are perceiving it as bad. It cannot be bad. It cannot be bad if it's happening to you. And I understand the initial impression could be that it feels bad and something like really unpleasant. But if you've lived for any period of time, you have this experience of looking back on bad things happen, that happened to you and, and you could say, that is the best thing that happened to me. The part that I want to dig into more is that recognizing it as it happens part, because that is much more difficult, obviously, right? You sort of react in it at the moment and whatnot. So like, A... I guess, what is the advantage of recognizing it in the moment? And then B, how do you get to that point? <laughs> like, is there, is there, like, that sounds like where you get to the stoic practice, stoic training, all that kind of stuff. I'd love to understand a little bit more of that because that's a lot harder to do. I mean, there's not a person here that can't be like, oh, I got fired and it was the best thing that led to this job. And now I'm here and I'm so much happier. And, you know, you can go into the Chinese thing when one door closes, another door opens and could be wrong. I think it's a Chinese saying, but anyway, stuff like that. So the recognizing it in the moment part, that seems interesting. The way that Epictetus would go about it is, you know, again, he would start with this basic premise of the whole point of stoicism is to be able to correctly use impressions. So you have this thing that comes to you. It feels bad. You perceive it as bad. It seems self-evidently bad. And yet you have to ask yourself the question, is this bad? 
what if this weren't bad? What would it mean? You know, what if I imagined in a year from now, I look back on this as positive, what would that mean? If I could see it from the perspective, I would might see it a year from now, how would I behave in this moment differently? And so it's a series of questions really, where you almost use your rational brain essentially to take this emotional negative wave that's come your way, you know, that's caused and you're responding to. And mostly what you're trying to do is you're trying to deny it. You know, most of the strain of the moment of like when something bad happens is the inability to accept it. We don't want it to happen. So we keep pushing it away, fighting it, almost trying to deny its existence. And that's what causes this, this great distress. And so being able to accept what is and go, this is my life now. This is my life now. And if you have any sort of religious or faith beliefs at all, this is where it really comes helpful. It's like, well, there's must be part of, it must be part of some bigger plan that I don't understand. You know, and the Stoics were religious, but not in the not same in the way. classic that sense, right? That. Yeah. They believed in there were in like some connecting tissue of the universe, you know, in life, that there was something that tied it together. Epictetus would call it Zeus, for lack of a better, better thing to call it. Okay. When those bad things happen, I think with what what the training, for lack of a better word, and that you can do, that those who follow this practice do anyway, is to be maybe a little bit more attuned to how they're reacting to anything. So uh, let me just give you a quick example. Like, I, again, I don't classify myself as a stoic or anything like that, but I've had anger issues in my path. <laughs> and so what I've been trying to do is like recognize when I'm getting angry about something and not like letting myself follow that, the anger part, but just being, okay, you're clearly angry, take a step back and, you know, not indulge in that, I guess. That sounds like a version of what you're talking about, isn't it? Anger is one reaction, but there could be others. It could be fear, there could be sadness, or et cetera, et cetera. So it sounds like what you're saying is that to recognize when you're getting to some sort of state of what I'll call agitation, for lack of a better word, to recognize that and then try to approach it differently. Is that it's just a matter of doing that over and over and over again to, until it becomes habit? It's actually useful for this to think about the, the practices in Buddhism, which there's so much overlap, it's incredible. And actually, when you think about that, these things sort of came into existence at roughly the same time in different parts of the world tells you something about truths, I guess. But in Buddhism, they think of meditation, it's to be the observer. It's to separate yourself from your thoughts to the point that you can see the thoughts as they bubble up, pass through your mind. And then the step in sort of controlling your thoughts or in choosing intentionally your thoughts is not control, but observation, just to be able to see it happening. And so I always thought in my practice of meditation, for instance, that all it really did was it gave me a half a second between stimulus and response a pause where I could see it. And so I could see the stimulus. And at first I wouldn't be able to do anything. I would still respond in the same way. And then eventually, you know, I could start to, in that pause and that slight space between the two things, I could start to choose a little differently. I could maybe take the edge off of it. You know, I could dampen it a little bit. I could redirect it a little bit. And then ultimately it gets to this point where you can see it coming in. You can sort of anticipate even the effect it's going to have on you physically. And you can almost force a non-response from yourself, at least in the short term. And the best way to do that is by asking yourself questions. And there are ways you can do this in advance, of course, and we can talk about one of the popular ideas that's made popular recently was this negative visualization. The most important thing is Epictetus and Buddha would say that you need to be trained to be the observer. You need to be monitoring constantly your, your own thoughts and responses and, and seeing the way, you know, how the programming is done. And then so you can intentionally program it differently. So let me just lean into that just a tad. I get it. Like on one hand, I mean, when I, when I talk about how I try to do that on the anger side, it's, it's, I'm trying to just be less <laughs> unhappy, right? And, and, you know, that's always a good thing. But there's also a usefulness to letting that trigger you. There's a motivation, like as a writer, as a, someone who had a you know, creative career, some of the best stuff I've ever done has been in response to things like when I've just completely flown off the handle, right? And like, okay, now I'm pissed. There's a positive motivating force behind letting yourself get into that space as well, whereas total tranquility would be almost an inert state. 
I, I'm sure you have an answer for this. So how, how do you balance those things? Well, I don't think you have to balance. I think you just have to be the master of your passions rather than the slave of your passions. Using those energies that drive you, you know, like uh, there's certain things that just make piss me off. And I find that they're, if I use them right, they can be used for a lot of good. But the things that piss me off are usually things that are like I, I, some perceived injustice that I see, you know, where it's wrong, it's hurting somebody. And I get mad about it. And I don't want to be tranquil about that. But choosing the best way to use that energy that that seeing something, some injustice happen, using it in a way that I that is constructive rather than destructive, you know, is my choice. I have, when I was younger, I was definitely a slave to it. I'd lose my temper. I was one of the many, many millions of teenage boys that punched holes in my wall at one point in my life. A lot have, not most, hopefully. But I know a lot have. You are a slave to your passions at that point. You are really not a human at that point because the rationality, the ability to be able to choose is the thing that separates humans from all other forms of life. Oh, yeah. And I was one of those guys as well. And uh, there has been some broken furniture and uh, electronics in, the, in my past as well. I get what you're saying is that, yes, you can let it motivate you, but you're motivated into that area of control. Okay. Here, you know, yeah, I could control throwing a remote against the wall, but that, what does that do? But I could also control it by writing something or, or, you know, finally taking the effort to, I don't know, organize certain components of like our business, for instance, that were messed up. And finally, I'm just going to, I'm going to get this done. And it makes you feel better because you feel like you have to do something. It's that bringing the motivation into the things that you can control. That's always made me feel a little better anyway. One of the things that makes Stoicism work for me better personally than Buddhism is that it is so dominated by action. So much of Buddhism, you feel like you need to go and seclude yourself and isolate yourself and go into contemplation. But Stoicism's fundamental anchoring idea is action. Like you must act properly in the world and thinking properly, correct use of impressions, enables you to act excellently in the world. So using those emotions, using that fuel that you have, those passions, is part of it. It's bridling a horse. It's so that it can be steered in the right direction. And that's the practice is how you get there. Interesting. Okay, that makes sense. And now I want to do get into the, the negative visualization part because, again, I'm looking at this through my own personal lens. What we started with talking about, which is that what are the things in your control, art of your control, and what you can influence, that just seems like common sense. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like a lot of philosophies tend to just be like, oh, well, duh. Now, this negative visualization part wasn't something I had thought about before, and I find it very, very interesting. So explain what that means and how you use it. People don't like it because it's not nice, and you're supposed to have a good attitude, and you're supposed to think about positive things. You know, it's uh, rainbows and fairies and unicorns is like you know, supposed to, what people are supposed to think about. But in the mind of a Stoic, thinking only about the positive, the things for, that you hope to be, leave you woefully unprepared for the things that could happen, and that in some cases are destined to happen, that must happen. And death is one of the most common ones. And of course, you have to realize that Stoicism came into existence you know, uh, millennia ago. Infant mortality was something that was very, very common there. So people would lose their children all the time. Now you imagine that now, and it's like, how traumatizing. I, I, and I know a couple of parents, unfortunately, who have lost a kid. And it's like, it is, I just can't even imagine. I cannot imagine as a father, I can't imagine you know, that happening. It, although I have tried to imagine, that's the negative visualization part. I mean, I just, I, like the depth of pain that someone must feel, but it was part of, it was more common then. So people, it was really useful. This was particularly useful then. Essentially, Epictetus says, as you kiss your child goodnight, say to yourself, you may be dead in the morning. The child, not yourself. The child, yes. The child may be dead in the morning. So you're thinking of trying to really imagine that that happens, that, it, that the, you wake up in the, overnight, that your daughter has passed. And, um, What's the reason for that? Well, the reason for it is it could happen. 
if it did happen, you'd be in a position to better respond as you should respond because there would be people who need you not to be broken by it. You would have maybe other kids or your, or your spouse who will be suffering. And you know, for you to be who you should be for them, this can't be totally blindsiding to you. You're training your impression, to use the word that you used earlier, it sounds like. Yeah, you're training the correct use of impressions, yes. So that's one. And number two is if you want to feel truly grateful for anything in life, imagine losing it. Imagine losing it. Imagine the worst possible thing happening to you. The one other part of this is that the things that we are afraid of, we avoid thinking about. So imagine people who think about, well, what'll happen if I lose my job or, um, or what'll happen if people discover that, you know, I'm not as smart as, you know, they think I am or whatever, you know what I mean? People have these fears about what, you know, I have this fear of, because I grew up very poor. I have this fear of being poor. I really do, but it's not as distinct as it was, but it was something that was constantly motivating me, made me work more than I needed to, to try and get more money than I would ever need. And it was kind of dumb actually. But when I started thinking about it, what happens if you lose everything? If you imagine it to its furthest extent, every detail, you know, all the way through the shame that you would feel for telling people who knew you as having, being wealthy, now all of a sudden poor, you know, for having to sleep on your, you know, ask your parents if you can move your family into their basement, you know, I mean, all of these things, if you think through them far enough, you take away the fear behind them because you, you actually, you can imagine that, you know, in that situation, obviously bad when I'm there, it's okay. Everything is still okay when that happens. And I still have the opportunity to try, you know, to try to live well. Well, it's more than that though, isn't it? I mean, I don't want to dismiss that. This is something that, that I actually did in the early stages of this whole pandemic thing is that I just happened to be sort of researching this idea at the same time where I was having my own anxiety spike about what might happen if this or another thing. And so you start looking at, okay, if this, then what? We've been discussing it on more of a sort of a mental preparation point of view, but it's also like an actual preparation point of view. You're actually creating a plan for the worst at the same time, are you not? You are. You know, and depending upon the negative visualization in particular, you know, the plan might require, like if you're, if you're imagining, well, let's say we all get locked in our house for a couple of weeks. Well, let's have some food. You know, so you go buy some food and you do practical things. When you're thinking, imagining your daughter dying as you're kissing her goodnight, in that situation, what's the real preparation that you can actually do? Well, really nothing, except for being grateful in that moment that she's here and treasuring the time that you have. And that does prepare you to not feel like, man, I wasted it, you know? I was rude to her the last time I spoke to her. So it does prepare you to be able to, you know, to justify, you know, your existence to yourself when negative things befall you. And again, it prepares you to better respond when it happens, even if you didn't physically do anything to respond. There's a, a little bit of both involved in this one, right? Like I, I always look at it on the more practical point of view, because that's what I did is I mean, I just I had all these worries and, you know, things like that. I was able to take certain steps. And to your point, I was able to mentally, like in my head, I'm like, okay, worst case scenario, we wind up doing this. Well, it's not that bad. And that's kind of how I was thinking of it. Like there's some people that are going to be in far worse situations, but I've got all these assets, you know, like I, I kind of, it definitely calmed me down because I have an anxiety thing, as you know, like I'm always kind of got that eye out, but I've also looked for steps I could take to mitigate the chances of those things happening. And then that, and for me, that's the motivating factor of the negative visualization more than anything else. It does eliminate or at least substantially reduce the distress you feel in the moment about these vague fears. Because we all have vague fears in our head, but they're unexplored. And we feel like it's dangerous to explore them fully, especially when they seem like they're something so utterly wrong, like the death of somebody you love, you know, like a child, especially. It just seems so deeply unjust and unfair that you, you don't want to contemplate it. And yet, by not keeping that fear vague and ambiguous, but instead exploring it deeply and imagining it, 
you know, then you put yourself in a position to succeed and to thrive despite it. So I'll, one personal example, uh, let's see, it would have been in 2005, my little brother killed himself. And it was shocking and awful. I mean, truly. And I was studying stoicism at the time. I had been for years before that. But it was really hard to like wrap your head around because I had never imagined this. You know, I had never imagined this kind of a situation. You look at all the things, that you know, how you handled it, what you could have done better. Because I was an asshole to him the last time I saw him. I really was. I was a jerk. And so I feel like all kinds of regret and guilt about that. If I had had more time to negatively visualize that, I would not have treated him in the way that I treated him in the last instance I saw him, despite that we had some kind of underlying dispute that had been going on for a little while. I wouldn't have handled it that way. I wouldn't have lived with those regrets. But then once it happens, and once you realize that you're in a bad situation, that something happened that's tragic and awful, and you there's just no one doing it, the Stoics at that point, it's just it's to fully realize where you're at, to recognize what the new reality is. And then you know, the way that I framed it, and Marcus Aurelius doesn't exactly say it like this, but it's to take something awful, take this terrible tragedy, and your obligation is to try to turn it into something beautiful, which is utterly impossible from awful things. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to try to turn something awful, some tragedy into something beautiful. I mean, most of the most beautiful things were created out of something terrible. Nothing makes up for it. I guess is what I'm saying. Okay. I feel there's nothing that I could do. That could fill that hole in any way. Of course not. No. But a lot of positive results come out of tragedy. And I don't want to dismiss what you were just saying, but like, that's what I was getting back to earlier when I was saying, utilizing that, that negative reaction to things to motivate you into creating something else. Like some of the best art, for instance, has come from this areas of extreme pain and, and things like that. So definitely. So like the Stoics believe the first thing, at least Epictetus, first thing is understanding your own thinking, understanding how you use impressions so that you can begin to categorize them as they're coming in. You can begin to see them as they're coming in and that understand in your control and not in your control. So like that's his first thing. Second to that is realizing that the only good and bad can be things that are within your control. And he feels like once you've kind of got that down, now you're able to sort of apply these things to the world. But before that, it's very hard to sort of act in an excellent, virtuous way in the world until you have some control or some grasp over your own mental processes and recognizing what you're, you know, how you're handling these inputs. You still, of course, have to act in the world, but you don't want to jump to the idea of acting virtuously in the world until you, as a Stoic, until you first get your mind under control and you are start to understand what's good and what's bad. And then from there, it's acting the world. And within the world, there's lots of deep responsibility, lots of deep responsibility to act. So this is the thing that pulls people out of the contemplation part that's present in Buddhism into action in the real world is a sort of duties and obligations that one has. The constant imagining of the worst case scenario sounds like a kind of a bleak way to go through life in a, to a certain extent. So is this something that you just do like a little bit or is this like a constant thing that you do? Like I'm, I'm really, I mean, I get it. Like at a certain point in the morning, be grateful for this, that, and the other thing, and then you go about your day. But it's like this idea that you're constantly thinking about what's the worst case scenario, it seems kind of dour a little bit. And I'm just trying to understand but at the same time, it, it, I get what you're saying. It leads to you being more appreciative of things, but it just, it sounds like a rough practice. It's not like something you're doing constantly. What it is, is when you, an observation of your own, you know, mental processes, when you see your own thoughts and you see within your thoughts, a response of fear, you know, then that's the time to explore it further. So you see these things, you can start to see in yourself, these things that you're afraid of, that you're avoiding, that you, you see like a black hole and, you know, down into your right that you don't want to look there, you know, like you could sort of sense these things in you, these fears or, or worries or whatever. And 
it's in the observation of yourself, essentially, that you start to notice these fears that you need to deeply explore them. It's not going through life and constantly imagining it. But it also, I find personally, the only reliable way to invoke a true and sincere sense of gratitude in myself is to imagine the frailty of the thing. Imagine the, the transience of the thing, you know, that it is so temporary, you know, like that's where the beauty is in all things. And like within that, that's negative vision, like that it will go away is what makes it beautiful. That's so funny that like, there's like, again, like, this is the most I've ever talked about this stoicism stuff with you before. And what you just mentioned there, the impermanence of things is that's something that I've held forever. It's from a whole different area. It's a, it's mono no aware in, in Japanese. It's a mujo kan. It's another way of putting it, right? It's just, it's also like half of Japanese art and culture is all based around this impermanence concept. And it's something that I've always sort of followed, but I had no idea it was the same. It's funny how these things all kind of interconnect, I guess. So there are truths that seem universal. So we talked a little bit about the, con- you know, control versus what you don't control. We talked a little bit about, uh, quite a bit about the negative visualization. And then you were starting to talk about sort of the uh, responsibility to act, the duty. These, these seem to be like pillars if I'm defining these properly. I think that's, that's one way to think about it. I mean, okay. Epictetus, there, there are sort of these three main processes by which he thought of teaching his students. Okay. You know, I talk about Seneca. Seneca was an impressive man. I mean, he was probably, he was one of the wealthiest people in Rome. He was a advisor to Nero. You know, it's sort of questionable, like Nero was not exactly a great emperor. <laughs> you know, it certainly went evil in the end and Seneca suffered for it too. So, but he's a man who was clearly acting in the world. He's not somebody who was living in a hovel, you know, to like studying philosophy. It was a practice for him. And Epictetus was the one who was among the three who was the educator. And he, like, he lived very modestly and you know, lived to, you know, to educate and the young people. And the wealthy Roman families would send their youth to be a way to be educated by him. So acting in the world, because if you believe in this idea, Stoics do, that it's all connected, that we're all connected and you're an appendage of the universe, everything is a tree and you are you know, a branch off of it. And that you, know, you exist for the purpose of the tree. Like the branch is not for the branch, the branch is for the tree. And so with that come certain obligations. The question is, what are those obligations? And the obligations fundamentally center, and there's definitely debate about this, and some people don't like these ideas of obligations, but the obligations fundamentally center around the things that are outside of your control that you're put in. So like whatever role you are sometimes born into certain roles, whether you're born as a son. Okay. So how does one be a son? Well, if you believe again that there's in predestination, you were put in that role for something. So do that role well, you know, do that role, not for some end of the role, but to know that you've played the game well. I mean, one of the things Epictetus talks about is he talks about this idea of that. I mean, he uses lots of, and so does Marcus really sports analogies, essentially wrestling and things like that. But he's like, you're in a game and you're given the ball and, you know, it's using the ball excellently in the game is what matters. The game itself doesn't matter. And the end of the game absolutely doesn't matter. Like the outcome of the game doesn't matter. You know, when the ball is tossed to you, it's what you do with it is what matters. And so there's lots of things that are out of our control. When we end up in a situation, it's to accept it and to do with it what we might, to see what's possible. This is good. I mean, so, you know, in your control, out of your control, negative visualization, and then the duty to act when you have the ability to act, essentially. And then maybe even seek those, I don't know, tell me if I'm wrong, but maybe seek areas where you could potentially act. Yeah. Are any of those the controversial one that you mentioned earlier? No, the, actually, the controversial one I did mention was predestination. The predestination. The predestination one is truly one where, like, everything that's supposed to happen is already known. Yeah, I'm not sure I buy that, so I can see why that's controversial. The highest compliment I've ever gotten from anybody, I think, is from Gary, who said something like, he's never known anyone to have a sense of agency like I do. If I, there's a problem I observe in the world, I assume, perhaps arrogantly, that 
it can be solved, it can be improved, and I can improve it. And I have the obligation to try. To me, there's not a paradox between that and the idea that it's all sort of figured out. What you're saying is that you were destined to solve that problem, not that the problem is destined to happen. I was put there in that moment where that happened. I remember one time when I was in, and I thought about this for so long, but years ago, I lived in Argentina and I was sitting in this outdoor cafe at, at night. And I, as I walked in, there was a homeless guy who was sitting there and he was asking for money. And he was obviously had mental illness of some kind. You know, he was a little erratic or whatever. Went and I sat down. And then after a few, maybe five or 10 minutes of just sitting there, I hear what is unmistakably the sound of someone beating the shit out of someone else. You know, if you've ever heard somebody beating somebody. You know what that sounds like, yeah. Right. Immediately, I knew what it was. I had this feeling that that's what it was. And I could, you know, it's out in the software cafe, but there were a lot of people and I couldn't see over to the sidewalk where he was, but I just had this strong impression that that's what it was. And so I immediately went out there and tried to break it up. It was two guys basically attacking this homeless guy, you know, and I, I got in the middle and I'm yelling at him and my Spanish isn't very good, but I'm trying. I remember looking around though. And, you know, and the guy's like, he's like making these stabbing motions, like he's going to stab me. And, you know, and I'm just like, so yeah, mostly yelling, pushed a little bit and mostly yelled just to get him to, I was acting really aggressive to get him to walk away. And when we finally did, I look around and there must've been 70 or 80 people standing looking and not any of them were intervening at all, at all. I was outnumbered, you know, but none of them were intervening. And I think that's because of some form of negative visualization. What I'm most afraid of in my life is being in a situation where I could act and I don't, or you could help but you didn't because you were too afraid or too ignorant or just not paying attention. So I'd thought about that. I thought about that a lot. And so as soon as that, when that happened, I was like, well, I'm supposed to do something, but is it smart to do something? I don't know. But I feel like if it's happening there in front of me, if it's there and I'm there, that I'm supposed to do something. And that's the stoic view of predestination. And then what would have happened from that was what was supposed to happen from that. Okay. I guess I get that part of it. So the predestination part, I'm a little shaky on. And the other part was this, I've done a little reading on it and I can't say that I'm an expert so, and you've done so much more. So I'd love to hear your thought on this. Is this idea of somehow not allowing yourself to enjoy certain indulgences in life as part of the stoic thought or practice. Now I get like the negative visualization and at some point people actually purposely will practice being in worse circumstances. They'll eat less. Like they'll, you know, I, I, that part I get like, okay, what if I didn't have enough food? I'm just going to not, I'm going to fast or, or eat less for this week or month or whatever it is to kind of train myself for that as a potential reality. That's not what I'm talking about. I get that part. I'm talking about like regularly all the idea of enjoying a fine meal is somehow anti-stoic or something like that. That's where I push back on. Maybe I got it wrong and you can explain it to me now, but I'd love, because this, this really, this is the door slamming shut in, this, in my face on the Stoic uh, side of things, okay? That idea is conventionally viewed as something Stoics would have a problem with, like enjoying something like that. But I don't think that's true. I think what it is, is that a Stoic wouldn't ascribe as much value to it. Meaning that like, it's what they would call a preferred indifferent. So a great meal is preferred, but it is not a determining factor of whether or not you are succeeding in life. It isn't. It should not affect my happiness. It should not affect my ability to live, which happiness is found in living virtuously and according to Stoic. So I don't need it in order to be happy, but it is preferred. So it's a preferred indifferent is the way that they would actually categorize it. One of the famous things of, uh, that Epictetus says about life, and it has to do with food, his probably only one that I know of, uh, he talks about eating at a banquet. Life is like a banquet where you, know, you get past a dish and when you're past the dish, you should take modestly of that dish, you know, and then pass it along. But if one dish goes around you that doesn't get past you, don't worry about it. 
And if there's one that you know isn't to you yet, don't bemoan that you never got that. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's in, and basically in his view is that that's true of a banquet, but it's also true of really everything else that happens in life. You know, it's the same way with with a family and with your you know with your spouse with the roles that you find yourself in. You know, it's like just like in Buddhism, the thing that you're trying to get away from is something called dukkha. It's the wanting and craving, the picking and choosing. That all of our a lot of our distress in life comes from this feeling that we need something in order to then be full. And then, of course, it never fills us. So it's this empty pursuit. But it does not mean that you don't enjoy things like that. Like You can enjoy them when they happen, but you shouldn't be reliant on them for your happiness, right? That's one way of looking at it. And the same thing- That's the most important part. Right. And then the other, on the other side of it, there's that idea is that, yes, you want to be content with what you have, but doesn't mean you can't have goals to increase, whether it's to increase your life or to achieve a certain thing. You don't want to be in a state of stasis and say, okay, I'm happy with, with exactly where things are and I never want to strive for anything else. You can still strive for things. You have an obligation, have an obligation to strive for right, right. Striving for excellence, if nothing else. And like, there's a lot of, you know, you can get into a lot of variance in how you, in describing that, but I mean, you have an obligation to strive. And, you know, and my tendency is probably to be less aesthetically oriented. You know, it's like food was absolutely not at all, but I grew up with like really bad food, right? Awful food that you don't want to run eat. So, so did I, that was the whole, that's my whole point though. But so food wasn't something that interest that I thought was important because I, I think people are important. I naturally think people are important. I naturally don't think that other stuff is important. So, but it took me to really appreciate food or art or lots of other things to observe someone else enjoying it. And when I could see that, I could then begin to really understand the why someone would enjoy it. But I really had to watch someone else do it. I had to see someone else. I had to like really try and put myself at, like to observe the joy and satisfaction it gets from somebody in order to really get a lot out of it. I love art. I couldn't appreciate it first. I would go to museums and I'd watch people look at art. I would look at them looking at art to see if it triggered anything in them, you know? And it helped me to better understand, uh, helped me put my head in the right place for it. It's good to have it. You should pursue those things. And I mean, one other thing, that's, this is kind of an odd idea, but it's not very well deeply expressed in most of the stoic things that you read, but there's this idea of that in your life, you're bartering for something and that the meaning of life comes from that barter. Your life's energy gets traded for something, whether you, whether you know it or not, it's being traded for something. And when you are actively trading your life for bartering is what they, the term that would be used, your life for something, when you're actively consciously doing it, that's what gives life meaning. And so it could be as a parent to consciously, you recognize the sacrifice and discomfort of it, but you consciously intentionally trade your life's energy in order for them to be independent and thoughtful and kind and do something in the world. That's a bartering. If you're a craftsman, if you're an artist, the beauty in art is coming from people actually trading their life's energy. They're bartering it for something else to wrestle something into existence. And that's where I think entrepreneurship is like artistry. You're wrestling something, an idea into existence that didn't, wasn't there before you forcing it into existence. And it's a trade. It has a cost. It's very expensive to you to do it. And that is where all the meaning comes from doing it. And so that's when people think of Stoics as emotionless in that way emotionless generally, but in that way, more than most others, I think, they're definitely very emotional and very passionate about doing things. So they recognize that the point of life is to trade the life for something that's meaningful. And it's much harder to direct your energy to actions that you know to be meaningful than to sort of fritter it away and not pay attention to it. You could be a cook and creating art and great food and sharing it with others. And that's a trade that's worth making. It really is. That's, I think, a great place for us to stop today. 
I kind of wish we had had this conversation far earlier in the series of podcasts because I think it paints, it colors everything that we talk about, I think, going forward as well. And, and I think listening to this and listening to prior episodes, I think there'll be a lot more to take out of them as a result. So it, it's helpful. It really puts in the context sort of the point of view that you bring to all of this. It's not everything, I'm sure, but like it's certainly quite a bit. It's definitely it's the canvas. It. It's, it's, it's the yeah. canvas on what, on what we're talking about here a little bit. So that's really helpful. And I guess expect more questions along these lines uh, in future episodes when we talk about more specific topics. But um, anyway, thank you. This It's been helpful. I'm, I'm not, uh, I can't say that I'm a full convert yet. I, I want to take a close It'll look at the I got to take a look at the Epicurean side of things. That's, that sounds a little bit more of my, but I, I just don't know what it means other than the fact that it's got a lot something to do with food. So anyway, but uh, anyway, thank you very much. This has been really helpful. More to come, I'm sure. Awesome. Thank you, Anthony. Right, bye. You've been listening to the Smith Sense Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to read more about Matt's thoughts on this topic and others, please visit his blog at smithsense.com where you can also read the show notes, leave questions, and join the discussion. If you like what you've been hearing, please give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And sharing it with friends would go a long way. A quick thank you to Russ Rizzo for the show notes, to our engineer Jason Sanderson, and to the wonderful Zoe Keating for the use of her beautiful music. I'm Anthony Bruno, and we've been sharing time with Matt Smith. Have a good one.